Welcome. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. My name is John Chanel. I'm the college pastor here. You want to open your Bibles to 1 John 4. That's where we will be reading today and the passage we'll be looking at. And we're going to be talking about this statement, God is love. And the question becomes, why now? Why talk about God's love today? Well, in a week we begin the Advent season. So December 3rd, for four weeks, we celebrate Advent, which means arrival or coming, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so wherever you land on that whole decoration debate, maybe you're like a single Advent person, you're like, I only need one Advent. Maybe you are a double venter. You're like, I need two full months of venting, the arrival of Jesus Christ. So I don't know where you land with that, but For all of us, we are going to be focusing in this season on the love of God expressed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Another reason it's important to look at the love of God is that understanding God's love is critical to understanding the gospel. It's also critical to understanding things like the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we wrongly understand love, then we get off course with the gospel and with what is required of us. What's crazy about taking on this topic as I prepared for it is that God's love, the scripture says, is mysterious. It's hard to comprehend. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul even says that this love surpasses knowledge. It's so great and so profound. So in some ways, this morning, I have a task that I in no way can complete. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit and his word would do that. We live in a cultural moment where love is being redefined. And ultimately, our understanding of it is being distorted. Many are offering a distorted love to skeptics and outsiders in hopes that they will be more drawn to God. That if somehow we make God more attractive, people will be more drawn in. But unfortunately, without realizing it, our attempts to make God seem more loving actually make him less so. Because... If we are erring on the side of license or being permissive or thinking that God doesn't really consider sin very highly, that it's a problem, what we do is we lower the bar and his love isn't so costly. But the scripture tells us that his love is profoundly costly. So we want the gospel to stand as God proclaimed it to be. We don't want to make it any less beautiful than it already is. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't need our edits or our adornments or our changes. It's perfect the way that it is. God's version is better. Tim Keller, the since passed away pastor out of New York City, this is what he says about this distortion of love between legalism and license. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. So let's look to God's word to help us understand love and what God's love is truly like. So 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So three things that we're going to look at in this passage. One, God is love. It's his nature. All love comes from him and all he does is love. Number two, the Apostle John defines for us love in verses 9 and 10. And he defines it by use of the incarnation, Jesus Christ coming, and Christ's propitiation for our sins. So love defined by the incarnation and by Christ's propitiation. And then thirdly, we're going to look at if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is the most natural response. So number one, that God is love. So in verses 7, it says that love is from God. And then in verse 8, it says that God is love. Later on in this chapter, the Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. And so I want to define for you, give you one definition of love. Love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. This is what's so profoundly mysterious about the love of God, as I ponder this idea that God would covenant himself with a people. It's pretty crazy. A holy, righteous, perfect, flawless God would covenant himself with an unfaithful, sinful, fickle people. Why would he do that? (laughs) It makes no sense. There are many mysteries of our theology. I think that's one of the most profoundly mysterious things about what we believe. That a holy and perfect God would tether himself to us, his people, in Christ. But yet, God is love. It's his nature to express love. There's never been, and think about this, there's never been an action that God has taken There's never been a thought that God has had. There's never been a desire that he's had. There's never been any of that that was without love. Everything he thinks, everything he desires, everything he says, everything he does is love. That means that in all circumstances, no matter what, in Christ, if you are in Christ, he is always working for your good. Always, without exception. I was thinking about unhealthy relationships and how you would describe or what are the characteristics of an unhealthy relationship. So I went to the incredible authorities of marriage.com and some other online sites to find definitive truth on this topic. And I want to ask you, which of these would be true of your relationship with God? Which of these lists that I'm about to give you would be, you would be guilty of? You could think of it that way. I'll just tell you ahead of time, I'm guilty of all of them. So these are characteristics of an unhealthy relationship. Absence of emotional intimacy, avoidance, betrayal, blaming, control issues. No need to amen that one, I hear you. Discontentment, dishonesty, disrespect, 
drama, financial dishonesty, grudges, hostility, a lack of trust, manipulation, poor communication. As Christians, we call that prayerlessness. That one's tough. Unrealistic expectations, unfaithfulness. And yet, in that covenant relationship with us, God never has thoughts or desires or any ill will towards us at all, ever. He always is seeking our good out of love. Lest I compare myself to God and think highly of myself, God reminds me often of how I am a very imperfect father. He's a perfectly heavenly father, and all I needed this week was a drive back from the beach in a van with my family of seven. We have five children. So I'm going to give you that math again. Seven of us, five children, one van. There's not a lot of free square footage. And for me as a father, I have a choice at all moments. Am I going to be loving and seeking the best for my children at every moment of that four and a half hour drive? Or I can choose to be indifferent. That's a tempting one for me. There was a pair of AirPod Pros right at my left. And as things were getting chaotic and people were screaming about who touched who and who crossed the line and who did this, I was like, well, I could put in my AirPod Pros and pray for my wife and just. <laughs> I have that choice. I can be disinterested as a father. I can be unloving where I'm like, that's it. I'm seeking my own good and not yours. And for me, I fail in those ways all the time. And yet God, being perfectly love, never fails ever. It's so profound. 1 Corinthians 13, this description of love always is true of God at all times. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is always true of God all the time. The scripture gives us so many good glimpses and reminders of the love of God. First John 3 verse 1 says, See what, how great the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. One of my favorites is Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. His love is amazing. It's magnificent. It's extravagant. So number two, the apostle John goes on to define love for us a bit in verses 9 and 10. And he defines it using the incarnation and Christ's propitiation. So verse 9 says that, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, love, the love of God was in some ways hidden from us until Christ appeared. So when Christ appeared, he manifested the love of God. We know this kind of intuitively. If around the holidays you go to visit, for me it was like my grandma, but maybe it's your mother or your grandmother, maybe a father or grandfather, but when you come to see them, whenever you're there, at some point they're going to say, thanks so much for coming to see me. You're, you have a busy schedule. Thanks for being here. Your presence communicates love to them. And if you don't go, then you hear something like, when are you going to come to see me? Or if you're walking out the door, it's like, when are you going to come back? Like, Grandma, I just, I just was here, you know. But my grandma understood intuitively that my presence communicated love. God, in the same way, manifested himself. He came amongst us to communicate his love. Some other examples of this idea of the incarnation. One, as a parent, I was always challenged when my kids were really small. My kids now are ages 14 down to 5, so we still have a semi-small one. But I was always challenged to get on the floor and play with them the games that they would want to play. And that may not sound so difficult, unless you have played the game of Candyland recently. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and try. There's never a game for me that's more boring, non-strategic, and uncontrollable than Candyland. So it was sacrificial. Do I want to get down? I had five chances, and I blew it every time. It's like, can we please play anything else? My grandparents demonstrated love for me by showing up to my football games. I wasn't even a very good high school football player, but they would get there like 60 minutes before kickoff. So there would be like the security guards, the coaches, the players warming up, and my grandparents. And that was like the only people in the stadium. And they're just waving to me as I'm warming up. It communicated love. I think about, I want to brag on our pastor. I was here as a member for about 12 years before I came on staff, so I don't feel like this is kissing up. At least I'm telling myself that. But I want to brag on him in that, in spite of our church growing and being a large church, whenever he is able, he makes it a point to be with people, especially in their difficulties. Even this week, there was a family that was with another family member who had an emergency surgery, and he was there with them in the hospital, communicating the love of God as their pastor, the incarnation. Now, if you hear that and you would like a visit from your pastor, before you make plans for some kind of emergency surgery, you have alternatives. Table for 10 would be something I'd recommend for you. It's less life-threatening, it's more affordable, but your pastor wants to know you. So the incarnation, it intuit we intuitively know that it communicates love. Secondly, in verse 10, Christ's propitiation for our sins communicates God's love for us. A good Bible teacher friend of mine says that if I have 10 minutes to share the gospel, I will spend nine of those minutes talking about sin. Because understanding sin is critical to understanding the love of God for you. You see, knowledge of our unworthiness reveals the incredible glory of God. We are so undeserving, and yet he still loved us. We have to understand that. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's anger towards sin had to be poured out somewhere. 
And because it had to be poured out, it communicates how costly sin is and how valuable the object of his love is if he's willing to give his son. He defines love by use of the propitiation that Christ provided. Throughout scripture, it does this. Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. There's a way we deserve to be treated because of sin. And yet, his love is so great and so profound that he can be kind towards us in Christ. Romans 5.8 says it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were most undeserving, he died. Unfortunately, culturally, we tend to disregard talking about sin because we feel like that's going to be offensive or it's going to turn people off. But when we do that, we make the gospel, without realizing it, we make it into simply a nice story and not a resurrecting power. The gospel communicates God's power to make dead people alive. We need to proclaim the full gospel as we share it with people. Do dying people need simply a nice story? The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's proclaim that gospel. Let's call sin what God calls it. Further, sin is really an attack on the kingdom of God. It's an attack on truth. Whenever I am sinning, I am furthering the purposes of darkness rather than furthering the purposes of light. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. That is a movement of light, that the kingdom of God would come and be amongst us. And so when we operate in sin, we resist the kingdom of God coming. So sin is not something to flirt with. Isaiah 5, it's a pronouncement of judgment for people when they get into license. It says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If we distort the love of God, Isaiah says there should be judgment upon us. We want to proclaim the full gospel and we want to proclaim the love of God as it really is. Because it's so much more glorious than any way that we can present it. Furthermore, if people are going to encounter God and know God, they have to pursue holiness. That's what Hebrews 12, 14 tells us. It says, strive for, for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we want to see him, we have to strive for holiness. If we want to encounter God, we have to pursue holiness. This is what we've been talking about with Wadi College throughout this semester. We've been going through a series on 1 John. And 1 John gives us these two really powerful statements about God's nature. In chapter 1, it says that God is light. In verse 5, it says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is fully truth. There's no darkness in God at all. And then it goes on throughout the letter to tell us that God is love also. God is light and God is love. We can't have one without the other. 
So number three, if God's profound and magnificent love, if he so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we've experienced such a radical love, we're so undeserving, we're so unworthy, and yet he's loved us, the natural response needs to be that we would share that love with others in the way that we treat them. What's cool about this passage is at the beginning, in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then in verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's almost like two pieces of bread, you know, and the definition of love's in between. In this passage, there's six verses, 13 times it mentions love, and then two times it mentions beloved. It's saying that we as the people of God, that you are so divinely loved by God in Christ. He has lavished his love upon you. So go and share that love with others. John tells us that it's one of the primary evidences that God is our Heavenly Father, is the way that we love one another. Has this true love of God transformed you and I? And are we able then to go and offer this incredible and lavish love to others? Because of how much it's blessed us. I think wrongly we've adopted this principle, and I can, I'm very guilty of this, so I'm pointing at myself on this one. That we conveniently love those who love us because it's easier and we benefit quite a bit more. But Jesus says God's love is so much more profound and deep than that. In Luke 6, this is what Jesus says about that principle of love. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When is the last time that you showed love towards somebody who had no ability to repay you in a relationship where you stood no chance of benefiting or profiting and you were going to get nothing in return? If we love those who love us, what benefit is that to us? See, the love of God is expressed in the face of poverty. <laughs> One party has to be impoverished. We we're poor in spirit. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are, the poor in the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We had nothing to offer God, and yet he loved us. How might you show love for those who cannot return the gesture? Or how does your love and understanding of love need to be stretched or amended to match more that of your heavenly father? When it comes to this topic of understanding the love of God, it's a struggle for us, and especially for those who are in the midst of hard circumstances. So you might be in the room today, and you might be like, I'm going through some really hard stuff, and I'm really struggling to believe that God loves me. Because I'm suffering, or I'm experiencing calamity or difficulty. And so I thought about that this week. I'm not going to comprehensively answer the question, but here's a couple thoughts. And I thought about this with verse 10, that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That in defining love for us, God 
uses his greatest suffering to communicate what his love is like. The greatest suffering that God has ever experienced is the loss of his son. Sending his son to earth and then sending him to a cross. The greatest calamity that God allowed to happen to himself. And he uses that action to define love for us. There's no personal calamity that you or I could walk through that God would be unable to sympathize with. Because in loving us, he walked through the most challenging circumstances he possibly could in the offering of his son. I want to illustrate this with a story from a friend of mine named Tim Losher. So I was a student at Penn State many years ago, and I was involved in an organization called The Navigators, which is a discipleship organization. And Tim Losher was a guy who was really pouring into my life, helping me to understand the scriptures. And, and he relays this story of when he was a new dad. He had his son, Peter Losher, his firstborn. He went on a hike. Tim was an outdoorsman. That's one of the things we bonded over. And so he was on this hike, and he was praying to God and saying, God, would you reveal to me what your love is like to a deeper level. Take me to a deeper understanding. Reveal to me your love, God. So he prayed that, forgot about it, and kept hiking. And on his hike, another hiker was coming towards him with a dog, a big dog. And the dog wasn't on a leash. And so when the dog saw Tim, he ran at Tim. So Tim at first was intimidated by it, he didn't know what to do. But quickly, the dog started kind of jumping on him which Tim didn't think too much of until he realized that the dog not only was jumping on him, but was nipping at the blankets and the bundle in his arms, which was his newborn son, Peter. So then he became, like any protective father would be, he became very aggressive in trying to get this dog away. And he became angry. He became angry at the dog and angry at the owner of the dog. And so after this what probably felt like a long battle with this dog to keep the dog away. Finally, the owner gets there and secures the dog. They didn't really exchange words because Tim said, I was so angry that I just had to get out of there. So he was so frustrated. And as he was walking away, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, Tim, I gave my son to the dogs for you. You shielded your son, but I gave my son up for you. That's what my love is like. Psalm 22 says this, predicting the sufferings of Jesus Christ. 22 verses 16 through 20. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. God willingly gave his son over to the dogs in order to deliver your life from the power of the dogs. It's a beautiful love. Let's proclaim that gospel, the gospel that is costly and the gospel that calls us to holiness. Let us not be deceived into proclaiming anything less. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
As we close, I want to invite you to stand and to worship and to praise God for sending his son to suffer and to be under the power of the dog so that you don't have to face it.